bodily resurrection of Christ. This is one of the basic Christian beliefs that we're going over. And uh, this doctrine has been maligned by people both inside and outside the church. Uh, we all know about the Jehovah's Witnesses who say that Jesus did not bodily rise from the dead. They try to say that he rose as a spirit being. And we're going to see that that is not the case. Jesus bodily rose from the dead. But there's also a guy, Murray Harris, out of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and I, I hope he's recanted of his views. Uh, but there was a professor in an evangelical college in this country who was denying that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. And so it's real important that we take a look at this. Did Jesus bodily rise from the dead? Uh, we're going to see that the bodily resurrection of Christ is extremely important. An extremely important doctrine. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 14. The Apostle Paul says this, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. See, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then it's totally futile that I'm up here preaching. What good is it? There are no power to my words. I could try to dress them up and make them fancy. I can become real articulate and learn some uh, million-dollar words. But the fact of the matter is, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then all the powers, all the power of the words that I speak... It's just been diminished. If Jesus Christ, if his body rotted in the tomb, then it doesn't matter how much hooting and hollering I do from up here. The fact is, there is no hope. There's no hope for you. There's no hope for me. There's no hope for mankind. Our preaching is vain and our faith is vain if our Lord did not rise from the dead. Take a look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. You see, God has given each and every one of us a conscience. So deep down inside, we know right from wrong. And we know that we're not perfect. We know that we have fallen. So each and every one of us has a guilty conscience. So we know that we stand condemned before God. Now, if Jesus Christ did not conquer death for us by raising himself from the dead, then the fact of the matter is you are still in your sins and your faith in him is totally worthless if... He has not been raised from the dead. Look at verses 56 and 57 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's talking about death. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. See, because the law reveals God's holy standards, and man in his own sinfulness can't keep God's holy standards, so he falls short. So he says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Blaise Pascal, a Christian philosopher who lived in the 17th century, he said, just picture, if you will, for a minute, a bunch of guys sitting down, and each one, one at a time, each one in turn, stands up, walks forward, and gets slaughtered. They're all on death row. And Pascal said, picture yourself knowing that your number is coming up. 
One after another, each guy is being slaughtered. Your number's coming up. You are destined to die. And then Pascal argued that this is the human condition. It don't matter if you're Christian, if you're Jewish, if you're a Buddhist. It doesn't matter if you're uh, a member of the Islamic faith, a Hindu, a Mormon, a Catholic, or an atheist. It does not matter. The fact is, you are going to die someday unless Jesus Christ returns first. You are going to die someday. You're destined to die. And so Paul says, you know, this is a horrible thing, this thing called death. The greatest enemy that man must face is death. We can't get victory over death ourselves. Dead bodies can't raise themselves. Where are we going to find the victory? And the Apostle Paul argues here, thank God, because he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as the song says, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. You see, you, you are being consistent with your Christian worldview, with your Christian view of life, when you have hope about tomorrow. When you go on day by day. But let me tell you something. Every person who has not bent the knee to Jesus Christ, if they act like life is, is basically good and there's hope in life, they're not living consistent with their worldviews. There's no reason for them to believe that tomorrow is going to be a better day than today. There's absolutely no reason for them to believe that in the end, this vicious thing called human history is going to have a happy ending, a grand finale, and we're all going to live, as the fairy tale says, happily ever after. You see, if Jesus Christ has not conquered death for us, if Jesus Christ did not raise himself from the dead, then it is a leap of blind faith to think that we're going to live happily ever after. And that's why the resurrection is important, because in it and through it, Jesus Christ conquered death for us. After dying on the cross for our sins, he raised himself from the dead. Now you could try, let me tell you something. If you don't believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be, God in the flesh, the Savior of mankind, and that he rose from the dead, then you try to make sense out of human history. I mean, just picture for yourself the, the alphabet, 26 letters. Alone, they don't do anything. They're just a bunch of sounds. Animals make sounds. Just a bunch of letters. Now, the way you get meaning from them is when you put them together in an order where they spell out words, and then you take those words and you put them into sentences, and then you... you represent an idea, you give meaning to it, okay? If Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, if he was not risen, then the fact of the matter is, all you've got is a bunch of little facts of history, the letters of the alphabet, and you just can't make any sense out of them. Now, what the world religions do, they'll put a few letters together and they'll spell words like bleep. And because it puts together and it flows, you know, if you put like... Uh, a B, a W, an, an X, and a Y together, that doesn't spell anything. Okay? Every once in a while, a world religion will put some letters together, put some facts together, and spell bleep. And then everybody feels real good, because, all right, we got something we can pronounce. Bleep. 
But the fact of the matter is, bleep still has no meaning. Okay? You take the resurrection of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago out of history. You claim that Jesus Christ is not who He claimed to be, and I'll tell you right now, life makes no sense. It's just one big vicious joke, because all you do, you get born into a world where there have been great men before you, but they all died and they rotted in the tomb. And guess what, Mr. Fernandez? The day's going to come when your body's going to weaken. The day's going to come when your hair's going to turn white, and you're going to get wrinkles, and you're going to get older, and the people you love are going to die, and eventually you will meet Mr. Death. You will see death face to face. And then it's all over. That's life. It makes no sense whatsoever unless a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth 2,000 years ago, unless he truly was who he claimed to be, God and Savior, and unless he really did rise from the dead and conquer man's greatest enemy, this horrible thing called death, the resurrection is important because through it, Jesus conquered death for us. You see, a dead Savior is no Savior at all. A dead Savior is no Savior at all. People, maybe there's some people out there with a tremendous faith that they could trust in a dead Savior who couldn't save himself to save, to save us, but uh, not me. I think it's real clear a dead Savior is no Savior at all. Secondly, the resurrection proved Christ's claims. Look at Matthew chapter 12. The second reason why the resurrection, our belief in the resurrection is important is because the resurrection of Christ from the dead proved Christ's claims to be true. Verses 38 to 40. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees... By the way, this... This basic response that Jesus gave occurred over and over again throughout the uh, Gospels. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. What they're saying is, give us a sign, some miraculous work to prove to us that you're who you claim to be. To prove to us that you're God in the flesh, that you're the Jewish Messiah, and that you're the Savior of mankind. So they want to see a sign. Verse 39. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, Jesus was saying, these guys are saying, Come on, give us a sign of your authority. You're acting like we're the Jewish religious leaders. You're acting like you're higher than us. You're claiming to be the Jewish Messiah. Give us some reason, some evidence of your claims. And Jesus said, fine, you want some evidence? Kill me. Many of the prophets were killed before. But go ahead, kill me. And in three days, I'm going to rise. You don't like my message? You don't want to worship me? You don't want, don't want to accept me as your Messiah and your Savior? Then kill me. But let me tell you something. When you kill me, I'm going to shake this planet. I'm going to shake the universe. 
I'm going to rise from the dead. And then you'll have the sign that you want. But still, many of the Jewish religious leaders refused to believe. But the resurrection proved Christ's claims. Supposing he had come and said, I'm God. I'm God the Son. I'm the Savior. I'm the Jewish Messiah. Salvation comes only through me. And then performed no miracles. And then was put to death. And that was the last we ever heard of him. Well, the fact of the matter is, we would probably not be here today if that's all there was to it. You make those kind of claims, you've got to back them up. We need to see some evidence, and the resurrection is the evidence. It proves Christ's claims to be true. Many people, guys like Charles Manson, have claimed to be God. But it's only the Lord Jesus Christ who claimed to be God, performed miracles, and then raised himself from the dead after dying for our sins. And point number three on the importance of the resurrection. The resurrection is important because it is a belief that is essential to salvation. Deny the doctrine of the resurrection and the Bible says that you have rejected the gospel. Take a look at uh, Romans 10.9. You see, we only have to believe in Jesus to be saved. That's all we have to do. But it has to be the true Jesus of the Bible. And certain things are essential to our knowledge of the true Jesus of the Bible in order for us to worship the true Jesus. And one of them is that He is not a dead Savior. He is a risen Savior. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, the Apostle Paul says this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, in other words, believing in Jesus as God, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Paul puts that condition in there, belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead as essential to salvation. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul is also writing here. 1 Corinthians 15, in verses 1 to 4. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which, you, which also you received, and which you also stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So now, keep in mind, he says he's talking about the gospel. That's verse 1. And in verse 2, he says, by which also you are saved. So the gospel is the good news. That's what it means. Euangelion in the Greek, it means good news. He's talking about the gospel, and he says the gospel is that which saves. Then he explains the contents of the gospel in verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Okay, yeah, we all know that's part of the Gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But then he adds, verse 4, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he gives evidence for the resurrection. You see, in Paul's thinking, not only... It's just trusting in Jesus Christ as the one who died on the cross for your sins, the one who is fully God and fully man who died on the cross for your sins. Not only is that essential to salvation, but you also have to believe that he was victorious, that he conquered death by raising himself from the dead. And so the resurrection is important for three reasons, because through it Jesus conquered death for us. Uh, the resurrection proved Christ's claims to be true. And the resurrection is a belief essential to salvation.
And so that's the importance of the bodily resurrection of Christ. What I want to spend the remainder of our time on is the characteristics of the resurrection. The characteristics of the resurrection. We already know the resurrection is an extremely important doctrine, but what does it tell us about? What are its characteristics? This is twofold. Number one, it was an historical event. It actually happened in history. It was not a legend. You've got a lot of people who call themselves Christians because they say, I believe that Jesus rose in my heart. And then they'll talk about uh, all the apostles, they, they were in despair and all, but then Jesus came alive in their hearts. Now, I'm not denying that Jesus lives in my heart and that Jesus lives in the hearts of all true believers, but what I'm denying is the idea that is that, is that that is all there is to the resurrection. The fact of the matter is, the resurrection was a historical event. It was not a legend. Take a look at Matthew 28. You know, C.S. Lewis was an expert in classical literature. I believe he taught both at Cambridge and Oxford in England. And he was an atheist. But he was an expert in classical literature, especially Greek mythology. And he was talking one day with an old colleague, and Lewis, I believe, was in his 40s, early 40s, was not even in his prime as a scholar yet. And uh, this elderly professor that was on staff with him, much older than him, much older than, than Lewis was, this elderly gentleman, also an atheist, was talking with Lewis and they were bad-mouthing Christianity and then the old guy turned to Lewis and said the one thing that bothers me and haunts me day and night is the fact that I believe the New Testament is myth it's just a bunch of legends but then he told C.S. Lewis he said but you know as well as I do that it doesn't read like mythology reads C.S. Lewis said that hit him like a ton of bricks. All of a sudden it dawned on him how, he, how much he had been lying to himself. You see, in, in mythology, the authors never write it like they really believe it. And they never write it. They tell you these weird stories about the gods and this and that, and one god gets cut in half and half becomes the earth and the other half becomes the sea. And they never give you historical dates or who was the reigning king, and they don't talk about the, the specifics of the geography and that type of thing. They don't, they don't deliver it as if it was history that they actually believed. But in the New Testament, the guys wrote it as if they really believed they were eyewitnesses to these events and give it the historical background as if, as if they were recording history. C.S. Lewis said he couldn't sleep that night. He had a knot in his stomach. It really bothered him. Why is it written that way? And then he began to examine the evidence and eventually became a Christian when he recognized the reason why they wrote it like history is written is because they were recording history. There was a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth who claimed to be God, performed miracles, and then after he died on the cross, he rose from the dead on the third day. But it was a historical event. It was not legend. Look, look at Matthew 28. Verses 1 to 9. Now, after the Sabbath, 
As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. And and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They're recording that like history. They're recording this like, hey, we saw him risen from the dead. It's recorded as history. Look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Nowadays, you get a Christian to be talking to somebody about Jesus rising from the dead, and they'll say, well, how do you know he rose from the dead? And they'll say, well, you just got to believe. Take a leap of blind faith. That's not what the apostles said. Look at, what the, look at the, the way it's worded here. Luke is writing Acts, the first three verses of Acts chapter 1. The first account I composed, which was the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, that was the guy that Luke was writing to, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. You see... The authors of the New Testament are claiming that this is historical fact. That it has been verified through eyewitness testimony that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. Now if you want, you can call them liars. You can try to hold on to that very unlikely scenario that these guys who were willing to be thrown to the lions were lying. But don't turn around and say they were just recording legends. It's obvious that they were recording what they felt was historical fact. Take a look at Acts chapter 2, verse 32. The apostle Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. Peter says this at least once in almost every one of the messages he gives throughout the book of Acts. He says, This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Why did he have to throw that in? Why didn't you say, well, this Jesus God raised, and that's it. But he knew the people around him were going to be skeptical. And then he said, hey, look, there's hundreds of us. There's 120 of us here. We all witnessed. We saw him alive after he was crucified. We saw him risen from the dead. We're giving you eyewitness testimony. That's why 3,000 Jews got saved on that day. Not because they were a bunch of mindless people who believed in superstitions. But because they had solid eyewitness testimony from people who had claimed that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 again. One of the key chapters in the New Testament on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 
verses 3 to 8, Paul gives us a list. It's just an overview. It doesn't contain all of them, but it's just an, an overview of the resurrection appearances, post-resurrection appearances of Christ. After he rose from the dead, he appeared alive uh, to several people. Paul says this, For I delivered to you as a first... By the way, the first Corinthians, even liberal, liberal New Testament scholars, guys that are experts on the New Testament but don't even believe, even liberal scholars, the vast majority of them, I mean, we're talking in like uh, upper 90s percentile. The vast majority of even non-believing liberal scholars, New Testament scholars, agree that 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul probably between 52 and 54 A.D. So Paul was writing this about 20 years after the crucifixion. Now let's take a look at what Paul says here. So he, even believers and non-believers, at least the, the scholars, are in agreement that Paul did, in fact, write this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul is eyewitness testimony, including his own eyewitness testimony, that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead, and then he lists that there's over 500 people, most of them still alive at that time, who had seen Jesus risen from the dead. What he was telling the Corinthians is, if you don't believe it, just go, uh, just go on over to the area of Palestine and go talk to these people. Most of them are still alive. And they'll tell you that they saw Jesus risen from the dead. You see, the problem with the idea that the resurrection was just a legend or a myth Legends, historians have shown that legends take centuries to develop. For instance, Buddha. Buddha never claimed to be God, but his followers eventually began to deify him. A couple hundred years after his death, they started talking about him as if he was a god, and then it took a few, couple more centuries before there was a full-blown belief that Buddha was God. Centuries... Uh, legends take centuries to develop. Now, the reason for this is real obvious. Eric Anderson is a good guy, okay? Let's say that, uh, let's say that he dies at the age of 80, and a few of us are still, still alive and kicking. And uh, somebody decides to say, well, I, li I really like this music, so I'm going to start, uh, start some rumors and start a legend. I'm going to try to turn him into a legend and say that uh, he performed miracles throughout his life. He raised the dead, and he did this, and he did that. And then after he died, he rose again from the dead, and he appeared to his followers for a period of 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven in their presence. So the guy starts this rumor. Well, what happens? Well, Phil Fernandez knew the guy. I said, hey, you got it all wrong. He was a great guy. He loved the Lord. But the guy didn't do any miracles. 
He didn't raise the dead. And then he himself didn't rise from the dead. You see, the eyewitnesses will shoot that down. And there's going to be, when he's 80, there's going to be some guy that was only 15 years old when he died. And so that guy's maybe if that guy lives to be 80, and his generation does, you've got another 65 years after his death where people are going to say, no, 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 you got it wrong. Those are just rumors. Eric Anderson didn't perform miracles and didn't rise from the dead. So you've got 65 years where eyewitnesses will refute those claims, those legends, those attempted legends, just rumors is what they are at that point. But then even after that, their disciples, people who knew the eyewitnesses who knew Eric, for the next 60 years, they're going to shoot down any miraculous claims. It takes about 130 years after a guy's dead before any of those rumors gain any kind of acceptance because you need a couple generations removed from the eyewitnesses. But what you have in 1 Corinthians 15, less than 20 years, or approximately 20 years from the resurrection, already there is a creed, an ancient creed that Paul delivers here in this passage of the churches that probably dates right back to the resurrection itself. A hymn or a creed that was recited or sung in the early churches listing the eyewitness accounts of Jesus risen from the dead. You can't start a legend when the eyewitnesses are still alive because the eyewitnesses will shoot it down. Now, it's not a legend, but maybe it was a lie. Since legends take centuries to develop, okay, it wasn't a legend. Maybe the resurrection accounts were reported by people who claimed to be eyewitnesses. Maybe they were lying. That's a pretty, pretty tough thesis to hold because the fact is that these eyewitnesses were sincere enough about their belief in the resurrection to die for their testimony. It's one thing to say, oh yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, but then it's another thing to be thrown to the lions because of that belief and to be willing to have the lions tear you to shreds and to refuse to deny that Jesus Christ had indeed risen from the dead. Men do not die for what they know to be a hoax. It goes totally against human nature. These first century Jews who were very religious men, very God-fearing men, believed that they could die horrible deaths and were willing to do so knowing that their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, had conquered death for them. And they knew that song before, 2,000 years before it was ever written. They knew the message there, because He lives... I can face tomorrow, even if tomorrow means being thrown to the lions, or being nailed to a cross, or being beaten to death, or being stoned. Whatever comes our way, we can take, because we know that our Savior, our Savior has conquered death for us, and so He will usher us in to the hereafter with Him, if we need to die for Him. And so... The first characteristic of the resurrection, it was an historical event. It was not a legend. But number two, it was bodily. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't like this. They like this invisible spirit, Jesus, who supposedly uh, returned to uh, Brooklyn, New York in the earlier part of this century, which there's obviously no biblical justification for that whatsoever. But the fact of the matter is, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ rose bodily 
from the dead. Look at John chapter 2, verses 19. John chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Or 19 to 21. Jesus answered, they, they were asking him again for a sign. What sign do you show us that you have the authority to do these things, to cleanse the temple of God? Verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? They thought he meant Herod's temple. But then John said, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So Jesus was predicting. He said, you want a sign? Kill me and I'll raise my body in three days. John said when he talked about the temple, he was referring to his body. Now maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses don't like that. To be honest with you, I could care less. Now I really, I care for them. I would like to see them saved. I would like to see them trust in the true Jesus of the Bible, who is God. Not Michael the Archangel like they teach, but who is God the Son, become a man. And who is the risen Savior who bodily rose from the dead. Maybe they don't like it, but that's too bad. I don't base my faith on the Jehovah's Witnesses or the bogus Bible they put together because they didn't like the real Word of God. God has spoken. And Jesus predicted He would raise His body from the dead. So I could care less what man says if the God's Word says that Jesus rose bodily from the dead, then so be it. Look at John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. Jesus had appeared to the apostles, but Thomas, doubting Thomas, wasn't there. John 20, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger, and see my hands. Reach here your hand, and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see, and yet believed. It's real clear. How could Jesus have not bodily risen from the dead, but still had the holes in his hands and in his feet? But still, people might be skeptical. So you look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Luke 24, verses 42. Oh, no, verses 36 to 43. Luke 24, 36 to 43. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. And they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. You see, they, were, they like the Jehovah's Witnesses, thought maybe Jesus rose spiritually, but not bodily. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? 
that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while, I, while they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. They assumed the Jehovah's Witness position that Jesus had only risen as a spirit. And Jesus said, No, no, no. I have a body of flesh and bones. Give me something to eat. Touch my hands. Look at my wounds. I've risen in the same body that I was crucified in. You see, the fact of the matter is, the same body that you have now, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, He's going to raise it someday. You're going to die if Jesus doesn't come first. You're going to be buried. But the day is going to come when the sun is darkened. And the day is going to come when the moon's not going to give its light and the stars are going to fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens are going to be shaken. And at that time, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return with His angels in power and glory. And when He does, He's going to raise our bodies from the grave. Same body that you got now. But let me show you where the confusion is. This is the last passage we're going to look at today. 1 Corinthians 15. Let me show you where all the confusion is. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44. Again, it's, it's the most technical chapter in the whole entire Bible on the resurrection. Paul's talking about Christ's resurrection from the dead, but also the, the resurrection on the last day when he raises the bodies of believers. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44. Paul says this, So also is the resurrection of the dead. So now he's talking about the resurrection on the last day. It is sown a personal body. See, when you sow seed, you plant it into the ground. What he's saying is, when Phil Fernandez dies, they're going to sow into the ground, they're going to bury his perishable body, his body that died. But it is raised an imperishable body. So when Jesus raises it, my body's not going to have the ability to die anymore. It's going to be an imperishable body. Verse 43, it is sown or it is buried in dishonor. It is raised in glory. So my body's going to be glorified. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. See, I'm not going to get tired anymore. I'm not going to get hungry anymore. I'm going to still do some eating, believe me. I am a connoisseur of good food, especially Italian food. But when I eat, it's going to be for pleasure and for fellowship in the kingdom of God when it comes to earth, when our Lord Jesus reigns on earth for a thousand years and then throughout eternity in the new Jerusalem. Uh, 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. That term there, spiritual body, is what people misunderstand. Now, first off, first thing to notice is the word it. It is only two letters. It doesn't seem to be an important word, but here it's real important for theological reasons. Because look, what is buried? What is sown? It. What is raised? It. See, it's the same. It is representing the same word. It's the same body. The same body that gets buried is the same body that gets raised. But a change happens 
so much of a change that Paul calls the difference between him a natural body and a spiritual body. Now, the word for body there is soma. And what soma means, this is really deep, what soma means is body. That's all soma means, body, a body of flesh and blood, or a body of flesh and bone. It means a body. So a spiritual body, when you have the adjective there, modifying the noun body, it's telling you what type of body it's going to be. Now, the word for natural body, if people say, well, a spiritual body can't be physical, the problem there is the word for natural on natural body, uh, spiritual comes from pneuma, pneuma in the Greek, spirit, but natural, the word there comes from the Greek word suke, soul. It means a soulish body, literally. So if you have a problem with a spiritual body being physical, then you should also have a problem with the body that you have right now being physical because it's called a soulish body. You see, all he's talking about is the fact this should be translated either a soulish body and a spiritual body, literal, or what they should say, call it is a natural body and a supernatural body. The body is, our body's not going to be anything less than it was before, with the exception of all the presence of sin is going to totally be removed. And any of the negative effects of sin, like the fact that uh, aging, um, uh, disease, all that type of thing. But there's going to be new supernatural powers added. Our bodies are going to the same body, but it's going to be imperishable. The same body, but it's going to be glorified. The same body, but it's no longer going to have the weaknesses. Now it will be raised in power. It will have supernatural powers. A glorified body. In short, John talks about this in 1 John. Just like Jesus' resurrection body, he, it appears, I don't think he went through the wall when he appeared to Doubting Thomas. The doors were locked. I don't think he really went through the wall like he was outside the, in the street at that time. I think he was bigger than that. With a resurrection body, it appears to me that you travel at the speed of thought. In other words, you decide, I want to be in Africa, and boom, you're there. You have a body, so you're not in more than one place at the same time, but you want to be somewhere. You're not bound by the physical boundaries, and the, 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 the uh, physical realm doesn't keep you down. You can transcend that. And so all this says is that the spiritual body, our body, it's the same body we have now, but it will receive new powers it will be glorified, the total presence of sin will be removed, and we're going to be able to do things with our resurrection bodies that we could not, cannot do right now. But the fact of the matter is, the spiritual body is the same body risen from the grave, only given new powers and uh, glorified. And so, the importance of the resurrection is that Jesus conquered death for us, the resurrection proved Christ's claims to be true, and the resurrection is a belief essential to salvation. And the characteristics of the resurrection, it is historical, it actually have occurred in history, it's not a legend, and it was bodily. Jesus Christ bodily raised himself from the dead. He conquered death for us, so that we who are held captive to sin and death can now be set free. 
through Jesus Christ. Because He raised His body from the grave, if you trust in Him, you know that someday He will raise your body from the grave. To the Lord Jesus Christ be all the glory. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we, we just thank You, Lord, that You sent Your Son not only to die on the cross for our sins, but You also rose Him from the dead on the third day. Lord, there's, there's, there's so many enemies that come at man, and it's all due to sin, to the sinfulness that, that, that man has chosen. We chose to rebel against You. And so, Lord, because of our sinfulness, sickness has entered into the human race. Suffering has entered into the human race. Death has entered into the human race. And separation from You. But we thank You, Lord, that even though in Your justice You can just condemn us to the flames of hell, we thank You, Lord, for Your mercy. We thank You, Lord, for Your grace. We thank You, Lord, for Your love a love which drove you to send your Son to be slaughtered in our place on the cross of Calvary. And so, Lord, we come to you today not only thanking you for your Son's death in our place on the cross when he took our sufferings for us, but we thank you also, Lord, for raising him from the dead, for conquering death for all mankind by conquering death for your Son. And so because of this, Lord, we and we alone can have genuine hope. Only true believers in your Son, Jesus, can face each day and each trial that lies ahead, knowing that someday our blessed hope, the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, will return. And then and only then will we live happily ever after. And so I pray that this hope of the church would become the hope of all people in our community. That they would come to see that the only hope that mankind could ever face, that the only meaning, true meaning to life, is found in the empty tomb, the Lord Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this building right now that doesn't know your Son as their Savior, that they would recognize that they're sinners, that they can't save themselves, that all mankind have sinned and fall short of your glory, but that if they would just trust in your Son, Jesus, for salvation, if they would ask Him to be their, their Savior and trust in Him and worship Him as their God, that He would save them and would forgive their sins. And so I just pray, Lord, that no one would leave this place